Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. Hey everyone, I'm Megan, the Family Finance Mom, and welcome to this week's episode of Finance Explained. This week, I've got three major financial headlines for you. First, it was a short week for the markets, but the stock market hit a new all-time high last Thursday, while bond yields rallied on their short trading day Friday. How is the market navigating between recovery hopes and inflation concerns? Next, on Friday, the Department of Labor released the March employment situation. What does it tell us about the labor market recovery? And finally, the biggest news of last week, President Biden's unveiling of the $2.3 trillion American Jobs Plan. After that, we'll take a deep dive into what makes up GDP. To really understand how the economy works, you've got to understand all its moving parts. And since we measure our economy by GDP, what is it actually measuring? What are the components? How do things like increases in government spending impact other segments like private investment? And what really drives our economy overall? Now let's talk about the three biggest financial headlines of the week. Up first, last week's financial markets performance. The S&P 500 closed at a new all-time high Thursday, closing above 4,000 for the first time despite higher jobless claims and rising midterm interest rates. Stocks were up 1.1% for the week, with all of the gain coming from Thursday's performance. A good example of how time in the market matters more than timing the market, as missing out on just a handful of these rally days can really impact overall performance. The S&P 500 is now up 7% year-to-date, with much of its performance being driven by early cyclicals, This includes things like energy stocks, which are up more than 30% year-to-date, financials, which drive profits in rising interest rate environments and are up almost 20% in 2021, and industrial stocks also up double digits for the year. Last week, we saw midterm yields on two- to five-year treasury bonds hit their highest levels in a year following the announcement of the American Jobs Plan, while 30-year rates held steady. The 10-year and 30-year Treasury bond yields are now up more than 0.8% and 0.7% respectively since the start of the year. That's an 89 and 44% increase in yield in just the last three months. The overall market sentiment throughout 2021 continues to be driven by two key themes, hopes for a strong economic recovery tempered by rising interest rates fueled by inflation concerns. When inflation concerns overtake recovery expectations, the bond yields rise and market performance is tepid. This has been particularly true given recovery projections are largely still just that, projections, and we're still waiting to see them show up in most of the reported economic data. But this week's announcement by President Biden of a $2.3 trillion infrastructure spending bill added some major fuel to the fire on both counts. A massive increase in government spending will fuel demand and help the labor market, but it's also fueling greater inflation expectations and higher interest rates, 
as the government will need to issue more debt to fund it, while also raising corporate tax rates, which could slow the private sector recovery. More on that in a moment. Our second headline of the week, the jobs report. The first Friday of the month is always Jobs Friday, when the Bureau of Labor Statistics releases its detailed employment situation report for the month prior. The March report is the strongest we've seen since August. Total non-farm payroll employment rose by 916,000 jobs in March. This compares to just 379,000 jobs added in February, and we saw the unemployment rate drop by 0.2% to 6%. The good news? There were job gains across all industries and demographics in March, but some sectors are worse off today than at the peak of the pandemic, like mining, oil, and gas. We also still remain 8.4 million non-farm payroll jobs short of where we were last year before the pandemic. That's just shy of the 8.7 million peak jobs lost during the Great Recession, which took more than four years to recover from. The headline unemployment rate of 6% also understates full unemployment, as it doesn't account for the 3.9 million fewer people in the labor force today versus back in February of 2020. The labor force represents people employed and actively looking for work. Today, there are 3.9 million fewer people than there were at the start of 2020. The U6 rate, which includes those who are both underemployed as well as those who have stopped looking for work in the last year, is a better measure of the real unemployment picture, especially in the current environment where longer durations of unemployment may discourage more workers than normal. That number remained at double digits, 10.7% for March, 1.8 times the headline rate. Also, while we saw the headline unemployment rate improve for all demographics in March, it still remains much higher for Black and Hispanic Americans, at 9.6% and 7.9% respectively. It's also elevated for the lowest skilled workers, those without a high school diploma, at 8.2%. You may recall that these disparities in the labor market are now part of the maximum employment goal the Fed looks at when setting monetary policy. We saw Fed Chair Jerome Powell speak to Congress last month, where he very clearly reiterated the Fed's commitment to accommodative monetary policy until the labor market achieves a broad and inclusive level of maximum employment, which given the March data, we continue to fall short of. On the flip side, the Fed's accommodative monetary policy is also part of what continues to fuel inflation concerns. For some big picture perspective, we lost more than 22 million jobs in less than two months at the start of the pandemic last year, and we have already recovered 14 million of those jobs since April, which is truly incredible but we still are short nearly as many jobs as the worst point of the Great Recession a decade ago, so we have a ways to go. I also want to talk about one of the more positive trends out of the employment data in recent months, the labor market for women. At the outset of the pandemic, women's employment was disproportionately impacted by the shutdown. Female-dominated industries were disproportionately hit, and many mothers, faced with school closures and no childcare, were left with no other option than to step away from work to care for their children. 
Since the start of 2021, women have seen most of the gains in employment, accounting for more than 80% of all the jobs added in the last three months, while for the last two months, men have actually experienced job losses. Women have now lost fewer jobs than men in this recession. Now for the biggest news of last week. President Biden's $2.3 trillion infrastructure investment plan, known as the American Jobs Plan. To be clear, the president cannot make this happen alone. He has merely outlined a plan he would like Congress to act on, and Congress will now have to draft a bill, negotiate among its members, and pass it for it to become reality. But let's take a look at what he's proposing as a starting point. The plan proposes $2.3 trillion in expenditures across a range of infrastructure, manufacturing, jobs, and green energy initiatives to be funded through raising corporate taxes. The spending is proposed to occur over the next eight years, but would initially require deficit spending to fund it, as the corporate tax increases proposed for funding it will take 15 years to recoup the full cost. The $2.3 trillion breaks down as follows. The largest piece is $621 billion for transportation, the largest portion of which is $174 billion to increase production of electric vehicles, as well as tax incentives to encourage people to buy them. There's also funds for a national network of charging stations included in that. The transportation section also includes $340 billion in spending for more traditional transportation purposes like roads, bridges, public transit, rail, airports, and waterways. The next largest chunk, $400 billion for home care. This is lighter on details than most of the other segments, but in his prepared remarks, Biden indicated it is intended to make home-based care more accessible and affordable for families especially those known as the sandwich generation, working age parents who are caught between caring for their children while also caring for their aging parents. It is also intended to increase pay for these caregivers who are disproportionately women of color. There's another 311 billion designated for utilities. Half of that is slated for clean water to replace all the lead pipes left in the country with the balance split between expanding high-speed broadband access nationwide and shoring up the electric power grid. Another $378 billion is targeted towards upgrading housing and facilities. $213 billion of that is designated for affordable housing to, quote, produce, preserve, and retrofit more than 2 million affordable and sustainable places to live, which it plans to pair with, and I also quote, an innovative new approach to eliminate state and local exclusionary zoning laws, which drive up the cost of construction and keep families from moving to neighborhoods with more opportunities for them and their kids. There's $100 billion designated for modernizing schools, and the balance is for building childcare facilities, improving VA hospitals, federal buildings, and community colleges. Next, There's $280 billion to invest in the training of people for the jobs of the future. From contributions to the National Science Foundation, allocations to building out research labs, investments in climate science, and historically Black colleges and universities, as well as minority-serving institutions, 
They're all designed to further train workers for the future, as well as workers who've been left behind in the past. And last but not least, there's $300 billion designated for U.S. manufacturing. It's intended to support domestic manufacturers, strengthen supply chains, increase semiconductor production, support clean energy production, and more. Now the hard part, how we pay for it. The $2.3 trillion is proposed to be funded through raising corporate taxes. This includes increasing the corporate tax rate from 21%, which it was just lowered to in 2018, to 28%, returning it to among the highest rates of all developed countries. The president also proposes a series of measures designed to close corporate tax loopholes and increase corporate taxes as well. These include a minimum foreign tax to ensure that foreign profits get taxed, a 15% minimum tax on book income, so companies like Amazon can't report billions in earnings to shareholders while paying far less than they should in corporate taxes. He wants to end all fossil fuel subsidies, and last but not least, a higher audit rate of large corporations to ensure their compliance. One thing less talked about that's also included in the American Jobs Plan is Biden's call for Congress to pass the PRO Act, protecting the right to organize. It's designed to expand and guarantee union and bargaining rights nationwide as part of the American Jobs Plan, but also raises the cost of hiring for businesses. Let me give you a little background here. The House passed a version of the PRO Act in 2020, but the Senate never voted on it so a new version is being circulated by House and Senate Democrats now. The PRO Act would be the most significant labor law reform in the United States since the World War II-era Taft-Hartley Act and the 1935 Wagner Act, which created the National Labor Relations Board in the first place, first granting private sector employees the right to form and join unions. The PRO Act would end state right-to-work laws, where employees have the freedom to choose whether they wish to join and pay union dues or not, even if a union exists at an employer. Currently, 27 out of the 50 states in the U.S. have right-to-work laws. Under the PRO Act, unionized workplaces could require payment of union dues, and employees who decline to pay, regardless of their right to work, would be required by the union to be fired. It also calls for expanding the definition of employee and employer when it comes to unions. Changing these definitions might seem minor, but it makes more employees eligible to pay union dues. It would also further limit the use of independent contractors, like the debate we saw recently in California over Uber's classification of its drivers as contractors versus employees. And finally, it will give unions more employers to pursue for penalties, like holding franchisers responsible for employment issues or violations by a franchisee. As an example, going after, say, McDonald's corporate company because a franchisee had an employment violation. So what are the debates around all of this in its entirety? Republicans are generally staunchly against the corporate tax hikes while moderate Democrats are concerned about the size of the plan and the deficit spending it will require, since the tax hikes will take 15 years to recoup the funds spent in eight. And progressive Democrats, they think the plan is nowhere near big enough. 
Everyone is generally in agreement that infrastructure investment is necessary and may have been underinvested in the past. President Trump also tried to pass infrastructure bills, albeit far smaller. The issue always comes down to how to pay for it. There's also significant concern around the timing. Democrats want to do it now while they still have majorities in Congress, but the early days of an economic recovery are not the best time to raise taxes, which could slow the recovery and hinder businesses from hiring. For more visuals on the plan breakdown, as well as links to a CBO report on the impacts of federal investment that gives some indication of the economic impact of a plan like this, check out this week's Monday Market Update linked in today's show notes. This week's podcast is also brought to you by the Family Finance Moms Book Club. If you want to increase your financial literacy even more, come read with us. It's super simple to join in. Every quarter, we read a book. To participate, all you have to do is read with us and join in the conversation by following me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom. Follow the hashtag FFM Book Club to catch all the related book club posts and join in the discussion in the comments. For Q2, we are actually reading a pair of contrasting books on economic theory. Big Debt Crises by Ray Dalio, which studies economic cycles of the last 1,500 years, and The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton, which poses a new economic theory, modern monetary theory, which says that deficit and the national debt may not really matter anymore. We'll compare and contrast them as when we discuss them in June. Now for this week's deep dive. To better understand how to assess the drivers of the economic recovery, as well as the impact of policy like the American Jobs Plan, I thought it might be helpful to do a deep dive on gross domestic product, also known as GDP. We all know GDP is an important economic measure, but how many of you actually know what it measures and what all the different components are? Better understanding these will help you understand what drives the economy overall, why policies target specific sectors, as well as how changes in one area can impact the others. So what exactly goes into GDP? GDP, or gross domestic product, is the most comprehensive measure of economic activity in a country. It measures the monetary value of all the finished goods and services over a given time period. So we don't just measure GDP here in the US. It's a universal formula used to gauge the size of economies and monitor economic growth globally. If you can remember back to high school economics, GDP has a very straightforward formula. C plus I plus G plus net exports, where C is equal to personal consumption or all the stuff and services that you and I spend money on every single day. The I stands for investment. It represents all the money businesses invest in equipment, buildings, technology, inventory, and residential investment too. The G stands for government spending, and it captures everything that the federal, state, and local government spends, both on everyday spending as well as investment. And lastly, net exports. 
which represents exports less imports, or all the goods we export or sell to people outside the U.S., less all the goods we import or the stuff we buy from other countries. Now, how much do each of these components matter to the overall calculation? By far, personal consumption is the single largest contributor to GDP. It represents more than two-thirds or nearly 70% of our entire economy. It's why when talking about the economic recovery, I focus so much on things like personal consumption expenditures and disposable income because the health of the American consumer determines the health of our economy. Today, the lion's share of personal consumption isn't actually stuff, or in economic terms, goods. It's services. 45% of the entire U.S. economy is driven by consumer services. It includes everything from housing and utilities, which is 13%, to healthcare, 11% of GDP, recreation, financial services, and more. Now, when you frame it like that, the impact of the lockdown and shutdowns on our economy becomes far more stark. Nearly half of the entire U.S. economy is based on consumer services. So when you impose lockdowns and close service businesses, you basically shut down a massive leg of the U.S. economy. The next largest piece is a close tie between private investment and government spending, which includes both consumption as well as investment spending. For 2020, government spending was obviously higher than normal due to the pandemic. Government spending helps offset some of the declines in consumer spending and private investment, Normally, private investment is slightly bigger than government spending, but they both account for about 17 to 18% of GDP in most years. That leaves net exports. Here in the U.S., we are a net importer of goods and services, meaning we buy more imported goods and services than we sell to other countries. Being a net importer creates a net negative impact on GDP every year of about 5%. Can you visualize that economic pie in your head now? Two-thirds consumer spending, with the rest pretty evenly split between private investment and government spending, with a small drag from net imports. Now, has our economy always looked like this? Looking back at GDP back to 1947 shows a few interesting overall trends. First, let's talk about net exports. We've gone from a net exporter post-World War II to a consistent net importer since the late 1970s and early 1980s. Second, the most massive change in our economy has been from one of a goods-producing economy to a service economy. In the 1950s, consumption expenditures on goods represented 35% of overall GDP. Today, it's less than 23%. Meanwhile, services have expanded dramatically, from an average of 26% of GDP in the 1950s to an average of 45% of GDP since 2000. Finally, let's talk about government spending. Government spending has declined as a percentage of GDP over this time period, but it is almost entirely attributable to a decline in defense spending, which may be contrary to popular talking points. 
As a percentage of GDP, defense spending has declined from the mid-teens in the 1950s at the start of the Cold War to an average of 4.5% of GDP since 2000. That roughly 10% decline is more than the overall decline in government spending, from a peak of 25% of GDP in the 1950s to 17 to 18% in recent years. What about government investment spending? One of the talking points put forth with the American Jobs Plan is that government investment spending has dramatically declined relative to historical levels, but the data doesn't actually bear that out. From 1947 to 1999, federal non-defense investment spending averaged 0.84% of GDP versus 0.72% over the last 20 years, just a 0.1% decrease. It was only during the 1960s did it ever average over 1% of GDP, and even then it was just 1.1%, which was also when we were in the thick of building the interstate highway system. Combined with state and local government investment spending, government investment spending averaged 2.3% of GDP pre-2000 versus 2.2% for the last 20 years. So again, while it has decreased, it's only very slightly, and that's just as a percentage of GDP. In actual dollar terms, because GDP has grown, so has government investment spending, by 3.6% annually since 2000, just a slightly slower clip than overall GDP, which grew at 4%. So that's how our economy has evolved into the 21st century based on GDP. Now for a second, let me frame the proposed $2.3 trillion American Jobs Plan against current government spending and investment levels. In 2020, total government spending was $3.8 trillion. The American Jobs Plan proposes a $2.3 trillion in various government investment initiatives over eight years. For simplicity, let's just divide it evenly. That amounts to just under $290 billion per year. So how does that compare to 2020 non-defense federal investment spending? It's a more than 180% increase. And that's not against some depressed level of spending due to the pandemic either. It's the largest dollar amount we've ever spent on non-defense investment. It was even up 5.7% versus 2019. And if we look at federal and state and local investment spending combined, It's an almost 50% increase in non-defense investment spending per year for eight years. Now, don't forget, there's still another at least trillion dollars to come in the American Families Plan, too. Finally, let me address for a minute some economic theories you may hear in the coming weeks as the American Jobs Plan and its soon-to-come partner, the American Families Plan, comes out. Whenever we talk about government spending, especially large sums like this, there are two competing impacts economists debate, the multiplier effect and the crowding out effect. The multiplier effect refers to the theory that government spending that is intended to stimulate the economy, like for example, we experienced this year during the pandemic with stimulus checks, leads to increases in consumer spending, which then leads to increased business revenues, more production, employment, and private investment, which stimulates the economy, and by more than the original amount of spending, 
thus increasing GDP by an amount even greater than what the government spent, and that's your multiplier effect. The crowding out effect works against the multiplier effect. This theory says that increased government spending crowds out private spending, especially if it is funded by debt or increased taxes by using up part of the total available financial resources in the economy. This theory is based on two separate facts. One, all government spending is ultimately funded by the private sector via increased taxes or debt, which is ultimately bought and held by the private sector. And two, if it is financed with debt, that reduces borrowing capacity for the private sector. Both higher taxes on the private sector and reduced borrowing capacity reduce private investment. Which theory wins out is highly debated based on the specifics of the spending and the economic environment. But all economists can agree on one thing, that long-term, a government cannot sustain itself through ever-increasing debt funding. It will increase interest rates over time, reduce private investment, which reduces future productivity and overall growth, while also creating ever-increasing deficit spending due to higher interest obligations on the national debt, creating a vicious spiral. Janet Yellen herself, prior to being Treasury Secretary, said in January of 2020, and I quote, the primary federal deficit in the United States is currently quite large, and it's projected to rise much further as the population ages and entitlement spending rises relative to GDP. Absent changes in taxes or spending commitments, the U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio will rise very substantially in the decades ahead. I believe that needs to change to place the trajectory of the federal debt on a sustainable path over the long run, end quote. In other words, at some point in the not-so-distant future, the government is going to have to cut spending, increase taxes, and likely both in order to balance the budget and keep the national debt manageable so that it is not a hindrance to future investment, both by the government and the private sector, as well as future economic growth. Have a question about the economy or financial markets you'd like to hear covered on Finance Explained? Leave me a voice message. Just click the link in the show notes to record a message with your question or topic of interest, and I just might feature you on our next episode. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to catch each weekly episode of Finance Explained. I'd also love and appreciate your reviews. They are really critical for new podcasts especially. Thanks so much for your support. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures. 